they're getting essentially Polish social security cards so they can work. They're giving them access to health care, trains and buses are free. The war in Ukraine has led millions to flee the country and neighboring Poland has gone out of its way to help the refugees. It's Thursday, May 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, the war in Ukraine has forced millions of people to flee. Some refugees in Poland, however, are now starting to return home. Also this hour, Michigan doctors say if Roe is overturned, a dormant state law could outlaw abortion even for rape or incest. The Democratic state AG warns local prosecutors may charge both doctors and patients. And the former U.S. consul in Rio de Janeiro speaks about his concerns about Brazilian President Bolsonaro and the implications for democratic institutions in the country. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A more than 1,000 point drop for the Dow and steep declines in other major market indices, underscoring growing concerns about the U.S. economy. Here's NPR's Raphael Nam. It was one of the ugliest days of the year in Wall Street. Both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq fell sharply, a day after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by the most in over 20 years, as it intensifies its battle against inflation. The Fed plans to raise interest rates even more, and that's going to raise borrowing costs across the economy, from mortgages to bank loans, all coming at a time when Americans are already paying more for just about everything. The big fear is that the Fed will be too aggressive and tip the economy into a recession. The Fed believes it can slow down the economy without sparking a deep slowdown, but investors are not so sure. Rafael Nam, NPR News. As the U.S. Supreme Court investigates how a draft opinion on abortion was leaked outside, counter protests. When bodies are under attack, what do we do with that? What about the little babies, Joyce? Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked today about what the Justice Department might do if the high court follows through on the draft opinion and strikes down Roe v. Wade. If the law changes, we will address appropriate next steps at that time. But what will not change is our commitment to defending the rights of women and all Americans. The Senate is expected to hold a vote next week to codify abortion access in federal law, but in an evenly divided chamber, the Democrats won't have the 60 votes they'll need to overcome a Republican filibuster. Heavy battles continue in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol. Many civilians trapped at a steel plant still. The remaining forces in the city are still holding their ground, but describe the situation as dire. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby describes a Russian operation in Donbass. In the Donbass region, uh, we would still assess that uh, the Ukrainians are putting up a very stiff resistance and that the Russians have not made the progress that we believe they expected to make by this point. Kirby also says the U.S. is not offering specific intelligence to Ukraine on the location of Russian generals. First Lady Jill Biden will spend Mother's Day along the Slovakia-Ukraine border meeting with Ukrainian mothers and children who fled their country. Here's NPR's Scott Detrow. Jill Biden is headed to Romania and Slovakia, two NATO allies that border Ukraine. Each of them has taken in hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees and also served as a staging ground for NATO's military support for Ukraine. During the visit, the First Lady will tour schools that have taken in Ukrainian refugees. She'll meet with U.S. troops stationed at a Romanian airbase and also visit with Romanian and Slovakian government officials. The First Lady is the latest in a string of high-profile U.S. officials who have traveled to Eastern Europe in recent months. President Biden visited Poland in March. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington. 
This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Now that it appears the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says it's time to end the Senate filibuster and take action to protect legalized abortion across the country. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. Markey says ending the filibuster would allow Democrats to pass legislation that would codify Roe v. Wade into federal law. But even some Democrats oppose killing the filibuster. That means next week's Senate vote on the Women's Health Protection Act will likely fail. But Markey says it will send a powerful message. It will signal the beginning of an historic, monumental political battle in the Senate, but also across our country in 2022. Markey says the fight is energizing Democrats ahead of the midterm elections. Abortion opponents say they are energized as well. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. All three workers who were injured in a partial building collapse at the old Boston Edison plant in South Boston are expected to survive. Boston police say all the injuries are now considered non-life-threatening. One of the victims yesterday was trapped under a collapsed catwalk for nearly three hours. More communities are reporting thieves are targeting catalytic converters in cars and trucks. The device helps convert toxic gases from a vehicle's exhaust into less toxic pollutants. Bridgewater Police Chief Chris Del Monte says the converters also contain precious metals that makes them attractive to thieves. If they're getting high value for these converters, then they're going to make it more attractive to steal. And the other issue that's tied to that is not only economics, but it's ease of being able to obtain them and how many and you know how quickly they can be converted. Del Monte says investigators are working to identify the secondhand shops that are buying these converters. Sports, the Red Sox are hosting the Angels this afternoon at Fenway. Last check, 7 to nothing in the top of the 8th. The Red Sox are losing. In the forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight. The lows will be around 47 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of rain in the midday. The highs around 64. Mostly cloudy with a chance of rain on Saturday. The highs around 52 degrees. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. As the fighting continues to shift in Ukraine, Ukrainians are shifting too. According to the UN, more than 13 million have been driven from their homes by the war. Nearly 6 million have fled west into Europe, setting off the largest refugee crisis on the continent since World War II. But now many are also crossing back into Ukraine. Statistics from Polish border officials show that on some recent days, as many Ukrainians are returning to their country as fleeing it. NPR's Jason Bobian is in the Polish capital, Warsaw, and joins us to talk about all this. Hi, Jason. Hey, Adrian. Jason, most of those refugees ended up going at least initially into Poland. What's the situation like right now? Well, it's certainly less chaotic than when I was here in March. Back at that point, you had more than 100,000 people a day crossing into Poland. A lot of them were ending up at the central bus station here in Warsaw. Many 
had no idea even where they were going to sleep for the night. Now there's still our big tents at the Warsaw bus station, and there's people offering food, and volunteers are helping people find housing and jobs and transportation if they want to try to move further into Europe. I met this one woman, Maria Doranina. She was trying to get visas to Canada for herself and her two kids, and she was trying to fill out the online application form, um, including uploading her kids' birth certificates over this old cell phone. Uh, but despite that, and even though she's never even been to Canada, she thinks this is the best move for her right now. I, I want my children have future. And I think that the future in Ukraine will be difficult for them. Maybe sometime I will return, but not now. Even if the war ends tomorrow, she says, she doesn't think the Russian threat to Ukraine is going to go away. And yet people are going back into Ukraine anyway. Why is that, Jason? You know, probably the biggest driver of it is that the Ukrainian military managed to hold off the Russian offensive on Kyiv. You know, missile strikes continue as they do all over the country, but Kyiv's no longer under a direct military assault by Russian ground troops. So, so people are hearing that and they're hearing that it's relatively safe to go back. Also, Ukraine still isn't allowing most men to leave the country. The vast majority of the refugees are women and children, so there's this desire for families to reunite. And finally, some of the push for Ukrainian refugees to return is because for most of them, this, this is a difficult life. Difficult even though Poland has been very welcoming to Ukrainian refugees. Um, what are the conditions like there for them? Yeah, it's true. I mean, Poland has been bending over backwards in a way that you don't often see in a refugee crisis. Uh, they're getting essentially Polish social security cards to the Ukrainians so they can work. Uh, they're giving them access to health care. Trains and buses are free. Uh, they can even get the same unemployment benefits as if they were Polish. But housing is scarce, and most of the refugees are either staying with other Ukrainians who'd been living here before the war, or they're living with Polish families. Do you have a sense, Jason, of, of how long Poland can extend this kind of welcome? You know, I'm hearing from analysts that this situation is going to have to be carefully managed in the future, particularly in terms of the burden of refugees on schools and on the healthcare system. But one factor that's really working well for everybody is that Poland's economy has been booming. The unemployment rate here is at like 3%, so there's a need for more workers. And then the second factor is that many Poles are also afraid that at some point they could be the target of Russian aggression. And so supporting the Ukrainians who are showing up here is seen by many Poles as doing their part to keep the Russian threat further at bay. That's NPR's Jason Bobian in Warsaw, Poland. Uh, Jason, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Some people in Michigan are sounding the alarm about a strict abortion law that's been on the books since 1931. It's currently unenforced, but if the Supreme Court strikes Roe down, that could change. As Michigan Radio's Kate Wells reports, the law would make abortion a felony, even in cases of rape or incest. The anti-abortion protesters who often crowd outside this Planned Parenthood in Ann Arbor have gone home for the day. So now it's quiet, just a lot of women sitting in their cars, one with a baby on her lap, all waiting for friends or family in the clinic. Veronica Valdivia Vera says she did not know about Michigan's old law criminalizing abortion. Nope. I, I, I was not aware that, you know, that would happen. It's like shocking times. Wouldn't even think that in 2022 we would be worrying about women's rights, reproductive rights. Veronica is here with her daughter-in-law, Stephanie Mejia Arseniega. They're waiting for Stephanie's friend, who's still inside the clinic. And Stephanie says even just pulling into the clinic was kind of scary. They were surrounded by anti-abortion protesters. It's kind of intimidating because they come to your car super fast. You don't want to run the feet over. So, like, we had to, like, stop and be like, okay, 
No, thank you. And we were like 10 minutes late for our appointment because of that. Stephanie is only 18. She can't imagine a world where abortion's illegal. You wouldn't want someone young that isn't ready to have to have a baby because the law says no. Like, it's not fair. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel agrees. People can go to jail or prison for this. Nessel says the way the old law is written, the doctor who performs an abortion and possibly the patient could get up to four years. Michigan has not enforced that law since Roe was decided in 1973, but it was never repealed. Nessel, a Democrat, says she won't enforce it, but Michigan has 83 local county prosecutors and they could do whatever they want. I don't think that I have the authority to tell the duly elected county prosecutors what they can and what they cannot charge. Nessel also talked about her own abortion that she had years ago. She was pregnant with triplets and they weren't growing in utero. And I was told very, very specifically that there was no way that all three would make it to term. But if I aborted one, that it was possible that the other two might live and I took my doctor's advice. And you know what? It turned out that he was right. You know, now I have two beautiful sons. But under the 1931 law, there is just one exemption to preserve the life of the woman. University of Michigan OBGYN Dr. Lisa Harris says that is dangerously vague. What if a pregnant woman has severe heart disease and her chance of dying in pregnancy is 20 to 30 percent? But is that enough of a chance of dying that that person would qualify under Michigan's ban, or would their risk of dying need to be 50% or 100%? Or what if a pregnant woman has cancer and she needs to end the pregnancy to start chemo? Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is a Democrat, but the state's legislature is controlled by Republicans. So weeks ago, Whitmer filed a lawsuit trying to block the old abortion law from ever taking effect. There's also a push to let voters decide in the November election if abortion should be legal in Michigan. But that would not be until long after the Supreme Court makes its final ruling. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Ann Arbor. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Michigan Radio and Kaiser Health News. With inflation at historic highs, it's perhaps time for a long-ignored investment option to shine, the I-bond. It's a U.S. Treasury savings bond whose interest payments are linked to inflation. Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain some of the fine print. Before we get to I-bonds, let's talk about the plain old U.S. savings bond. It's been around since the Great Depression, and it's one of the safest, kind of most dull investments that there are. Right now, the interest rate on a Series EE U.S. savings bond, that's like the traditional plainest vanilla savings bond, is uh, 0.1%. And I-bonds are savings bonds, but with a twist. Their interest rate is tied to the consumer price index. So when inflation goes up, so does the interest rate. When I-bonds came out, I felt, oh, finally. Zvi Bodhi is a professor emeritus at Boston University. He's a financial economist who has been obsessed with inflation hedging strategies since the 1970s. And he sees I-bonds as a government program that serves the public interest. Basically, the U.S. Treasury is covering the cost of inflation for regular folks. So the U.S. Treasury introduced I-bonds in 1998, and that year, Zvi goes to a bank to buy the maximum amount of I-bonds for him, his wife, and their two daughters. And I said, I want to buy I-bonds. And 
they said, what are you talking about? They had, didn't have a clue. And I said, I know that you have them because the treasury distributed them. So they had to go down into the basement and they came back and they said, you know what? You're right. We have them. <laughs> well, there you go. Zvi was, was spreading the word to the banks about their own product. Um, and it does seem like I-bonds have just been underappreciated from the beginning, which kind of makes sense. Like inflation was just 1.6% in 1998. So holding on to your purchasing power maybe wasn't the first thing you're thinking about when you were putting away savings. Yeah. And today is, of course, a very different story. With inflation helping to set the I-bonds interest rate, for the last six months, it was just over 7%. The new rate came out on Monday, and it's now over 9%. Now, there are some caveats to I-bonds. Number one, I-bonds protect you from inflation. They don't beat inflation. And number two, you're not going to get rich quick off I-bonds. There's this $10,000 cap per calendar year, and the earliest you can redeem an I-bond is one year. But for Zvi, it's been worth it. He estimates he has more than half a million dollars of I-bonds in his portfolio today. And now people are finally paying attention to this thing he's been talking about since 1998. You know, what it takes is a bout of inflation. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, everybody, their interest perks up. Well, not quite everybody. Here's the shocker, Waylon. It's 23 years later. I have an accountant who does my taxes, okay? So I said to my accountant, I'd like to, you know, buy I-bonds. He said, what? What are those? <laughs> the work uh, marketing this continues for Savi. Lonely Road. <laughs> Darian Woods. Waylon Wong. NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, NPR TV critic Eric Deggins reviews the new Paramount Plus series, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. He says it recaptures the sentiment of the original series. That's ahead here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College Behavioral Health Service Corps, a service year for college graduates who want to earn, learn, and change lives. Apply now, williamjames.edu. And the Boston Pops. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of the musical legacy of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. bostonpops.org. In business news, big losses on Wall Street today as markets worry that the Fed's plans to fight inflation with higher rates will slow the economy. The Dow lost 3%, over 1,000 points to close at 32,998. NASDAQ was off 5%, 647 points at 12,318. And the S&P 500 down 3.5% to 4147. Some of Massachusetts' largest companies were not able to escape today's sell-off. Department store giant TJX companies dropped more than 3.5%. Thermo Fisher Scientific dropped just over 2%, and General Electric is down 2.2%. 
The herring fishing industry in Massachusetts and three other states will receive $11 million in federal emergency aid. Quotas were drastically reduced after a scientific assessment found herring were being overfished. Maine, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island will also share in the money. In sports, the Red Sox have been hosting the Angels this afternoon over at Fenway. At last check, the Sox are losing 7 to nothing in the top of the ninth. In the forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight. Lows will be around 47 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of rain in the midday. The highs will be around 64. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has been called the Trump of the tropics. He won his first election easily, but is facing a tough re-election this fall. And now he's been casting doubt on Brazil's election system, making claims very similar to false claims that former President Trump has made about U.S. elections. We want clean and auditable elections. I can't participate in a farce backed by the president of the electoral court. These sorts of attacks have Scott Hamilton very worried. Hamilton was the U.S. consul in Rio de Janeiro until last year. After retiring from the State Department last week, he published a stinging op-ed in Brazil's largest newspaper. And he joins us now. Scott Hamilton, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much, Adrian. In your piece, you said that Bolsonaro has a messianic vision and that he's sabotaging the integrity of his country's democratic process ahead of October's elections. What, What have you seen? Well, when I was in Rio, I saw President Bolsonaro do a number of things that caused me tremendous concern. He attacked judges as partisan figures who cannot be trusted. He criticized the outstanding electronic voting system in Brazil. He castigated the media as purveyors of fake news. He lambasted civil society. He also said that only fraud or God will remove him from office. And most recently, Mr. Bolsonaro said that the military in Brazil must be involved in running a parallel vote count. So taken individually, none of those things are normal, but taken collectively, I think they should have alarm bells ringing in Washington. Is your fear that he might refuse to uh, vacate the presidency should he lose the election? I do, frankly. Um, I think our mismanagement of the relationship with Brazil during the Bolsonaro administration under both Presidents Trump and Biden means that we are risking sleepwalking to disaster as Brazil uh, prepares to hold these elections. I think Bolsonaro is thinking very hard about whether he will leave office or not. Well, you wrote in your piece that the U.S. has been too passive uh, and that it needs to speak up now about this. What do you think the U.S. government should be saying and should they be saying it publicly? I think starting even a couple of years ago, we should have been uh, 
telling Mr. Bolsonaro that uh, the electoral system in that country was one that should not be intimidated in the manner in which he was seeking to do. More than that, I think we should also have been far more public uh, about uh, visiting with the independent democratic institutions in Brazil, like the Supreme Court, like the Electoral Tribunal, and making it clear that we have confidence in their professionalism and integrity. You published this column shortly after retiring from the State Department, but I have to ask, when you were the U.S. consul in Rio, how strongly did you raise these sorts of alarms uh, to colleagues in Washington or to counterparts in the Brazilian government? I raised it three times uh, before I left uh, Brazil. I raised it first in around uh, June of uh, 2020 with our ambassador, um, Ambassador Chapman. And when I had that discussion with him, he made it very clear that he was not persuaded that there was an issue. Uh, I raised it again a few days after President Biden was inaugurated in January uh, in a written form to the ambassador again. And that got no response at all, nothing whatsoever. And so when I left Brazil uh, in July of last year, I wrote again to uh, half a dozen senior officials in Washington and in Brasilia. And I only got one response to that uh, note, which was favorable, uh, indicating that it would be forwarded to others in the government. But um, if such messages uh, have been passed to Bolsonaro, I'm not aware. How is your article being received by everyday Brazilians? What have you heard from, from people you know there? I think the Brazilian society is, is about as polarized as, as the United States. And so there are quite clearly a large number of people who share my view. On the other hand, of course, there are uh, people who feel Bolsonaro has been sent by God to save the country from communism and that any effort to get in his way of that uh, mission uh, is uh, inappropriate and uh, unwarranted. And so I, I suspect there are plenty of people who would uh, strongly disagree. Scott Hamilton was the U.S. consul in Rio de Janeiro from 2018 until 2021. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Adrian. A new Star Trek series called Star Trek Strange New Worlds debuts today on the Paramount Plus streaming service. NPR TV critic Eric Deggans says it boldly goes where a certain other classic science fiction TV series also went with spellbinding results. Star Trek Strange New Worlds is the third live-action version of the Trek franchise to land on Paramount+, and it is by far the most similar to the original show that kicked off this 55-year-old franchise way back when the adventures of Kirk, Spock, and Bones first debuted on old-school broadcast TV. If you have any doubt, check out the show's opening credits, which feature Anson Mount's Captain Christopher Pine delivering a familiar speech. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Here's what's most amazing about watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds, especially for this longtime Trek fan. How much I enjoyed a series that recaptures the sentiment, adventure, and rhythms of the old show, but with a sparkling new sensibility. I didn't know how much I missed old school Trek until this show gave it to me again. Technically, Strange New Worlds takes place many years before the era of Kirk and Spock when a different man, Captain Christopher Pike, commands the Federation Starship Enterprise. Fans who watched the first modern Star Trek series on Paramount Plus, Star Trek Discovery, know that Pike showed up there and saw a terrible vision of his future. That vision now haunts him as he explains to a science officer, Mr. Spock. I saw my own death, Spock, 
And I didn't just see it, I felt it every agonizing second. I can't stop seeing it. I would suggest knowledge of death is vital for effective leadership. Knowledge is one thing, Spock, but I experienced it. How will it live in me? That question hangs over the series as we meet younger versions of beloved characters given a modern twist. Christine Chapel is transformed from a lovesick nurse with a crush on Spock to a brilliant medical expert. Spock, played by Ethan Peck, is changed by his connection to a character from Discovery who is his adopted sister. And we also meet a young version of another cherished Trek character. Communications, the prodigy. Cadet Uhura on communications rotation. Very happy to have you aboard. Thank you, sir. Enterprise is cleared for launch. A later episode detailing how Uhura, now played by Celia Rose Gooding, first came to Starfleet is a wonderful highlight. But the true appeal here is seeing a return to the Adventure of the Week format that previous Paramount Plus Trek shows abandoned. In the first episode, this involves Pike disregarding Starfleet regulations, like they always do, to stop a less advanced alien species from plunging into war. He tells them about Earth's history of conflict. We called it the Second Civil War, then the Eugenics War, and finally, just World War III. What began as an eruption in one nation ended in the eradication of 600,000 species of animals and plants and 30% of Earth's population. You'll use competing ideas of liberty to bomb each other to rubble just like we did, and then your last day will look just like this. Sounds a little too close to today's times for comfort. But it's also a refreshing return to the days when Star Trek was about a diverse, charismatic group of explorers having new adventures every week while proving the value of unity and peace among the stars. Welcome back, Star Trek. Your return to classic form is needed by TV fans now more than ever. I'm Eric Deggins. You're listening to NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, committed to ending homelessness for Boston's most vulnerable, supporting Heading Home, an organization on the front lines disrupting cycles of poverty every day. Join them in working to keep families together, fighting food insecurity, and lifting up those who need it most. Visit headinghomeinc.org to end homelessness. And Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. Ukraine is one of the world's largest grain producers, but the war has made it unsafe for many farmers to work the fields. We are afraid to go out there. We don't know where the mines are. Some fear food shortages well beyond Ukraine. In a few months, people start dying all over the world from hunger. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A more than 1,000-point drop for the Dow and steep declines in other major market indices, underscoring growing concerns about the U.S. economy. Here's NPR's Raphael Nam. It was one of the ugliest days of the year in Wall Street, both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq. Day after the Federal Reserve, the most in over 20 years, as it intensifies its battle against inflation. The Fed plans to raise interest rates even more, and that's going to raise borrowing costs across the economy, from mortgages to bank loans, all coming at a time when Americans are already paying more for just about everything. The big fear is that the Fed will be too aggressive and tip the economy into a recession. 
The Fed believes it can slow down the economy without sparking a deep slowdown, but investors are not so sure. Rafael Nam, NPR News. As the U.S. Supreme Court investigates how a draft opinion on abortion was leaked outside, counter protests. When bodies are under attack, what do we do with that? What about the little babies, Joyce? Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked today about what the Justice Department might do if the high court follows through on the draft opinion and strikes down Roe v. Wade. If the law changes, we will address appropriate next steps at that time. But what will not change is our commitment to defending the rights of women and all Americans. The Senate is expected to hold a vote next week to codify abortion access in federal law, but in an evenly divided chamber, the Democrats won't have the 60 votes they'll need to overcome a Republican filibuster. Heavy battles continue in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol. Many civilians trapped at a steel plant still. The remaining forces in the city are still holding their ground, but describe the situation as dire. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby describes a Russian operation in Donbass. In the Donbass region, uh, we would still assess that uh, the Ukrainians are putting up a very stiff resistance and that the Russians have not made. Officials in Beijing are now requiring daily coronavirus tests for all residents. NPR's Emily Fang reports the Chinese capital is scrambling to contain a small outbreak driven by the Omicron variant. All public venues in Beijing now require residents to present negative coronavirus results no more than a day old, and larger venues like schools and museums remain closed. Many subway and bus lines were stopped this week in the capital, so residents bike to work. Beijing is only reporting about four dozen Omicron cases a day, but authorities are nervous the outbreak could quickly spread if unchecked, as it did in Shanghai. That prompted a strict lockdown, which continues into its sixth week. Beijing did shorten its quarantine period because health experts say there's a faster incubation period for Omicron. So now close contacts and those traveling into China from overseas have to quarantine for 10 days in a state facility plus seven days home isolation rather than 21 days of state quarantine. Emily Fang, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Charlie Baker is raising concerns as the state Senate is poised to approve a bill that would let people in the country illegally acquire a Massachusetts driver's license. Baker says there's not enough protection to prevent an ineligible person from registering to vote. Speaking on the Senate floor, Lynn Senator Brendan Creighton says current law addresses those concerns. The RMV, Mass Health, in the Health Connector, collect information about lawful presence and will not submit the names to local election officials unless they have deemed that that person is a United States citizen. Baker says a Republican proposal that was rejected would have created a driver privilege card that looked different than a driver's license. Researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital are recommending that women begin screening for colorectal cancer as early as 45 years old. Women are typically screened starting at the age 50. But new research published today in the journal JAMA Oncology finds that screening earlier significantly decreases a woman's risk of colorectal cancer, the third deadliest cancer in the U.S. A reputed Boston mobster who was freed after serving 16 years in prison is looking to recover money the state took by forfeiture. Vincent the Animal Ferrara was released after the court's rule prosecutors may have coerced a confession to a killing that he had no part in. Ferrara says $250,000 seized by the state was legitimate income from a real estate transaction, not criminal activity. It's 435.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Next Generation, performed by Boston Ballet School and Boston Ballet 2 with New England Conservatory Prep School, May 11th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Sports Red Sox lost to the Angels this afternoon, 8 to nothing. the final score in that game. The forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight. The lows around 47, mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of rain in the midday. The highs will be around 64, mostly cloudy with a chance of rain on Saturday. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It was a brutal day on Wall Street, and it was incredibly volatile. In the span of two days, stocks went from having one of their best days to one of their worst when the Dow dropped by more than 1,000 points. The Federal Reserve is waging an aggressive fight against inflation, and investors are worried about the implications for the U.S. economy. NPR's David Gura joins us to explain. Hey, David. Hey, Ari. I say you're here to explain, but I mean, is this explainable? What's going on right now? <laughs> Yeah, what we're seeing here is really just some hair-trigger nervousness across markets. The S&P ended the day down 3.6%, but it was the tech-heavy NASDAQ that led losses. That index was down almost 5%, and this stands in sharp contrast to what we saw on Wednesday when markets rallied. It shows you just how fearful markets are right now, and what it comes down to, by and large, is the Federal Reserve. On Wednesday, the Fed did what Wall Street expected it would do. It raised interest rates by half a percentage point, the largest increase in more than two decades. And the Fed signaled it's likely to hike interest rates by the same amount at its next two meetings. Now, initially, investors were relieved after Fed Chair Jerome Powell ruled out larger increases in the future. But on Thursday, Wall Street woke up to the reality that interest rates are going higher. We're about to see the biggest series of rate increases in years. That means borrowing costs are going to rise very sharply in the span of a few months. And when companies are dealing with millions and billions of dollars, that makes a difference. Savita Subramanian is the head of equity and quantitative strategy at Bank of America Securities. And she says we should get used to these big swings up and down. Just on a short-term basis and a long-term basis, I think we need to prepare ourselves for a volatile market. And Ari, she says to keep in mind, interest rates have been incredibly low for a really long time, and the Fed is hiking them at this really fast pace. That is raising fears among investors. And are those fears justified, or are people overreacting? Well, this isn't easy. And when the Fed chair spoke on Wednesday, he had a great deal of humility. Raising interest rates is not an exact science, and the Fed has faced a lot of criticism, suggestions it's taking action too late. Now, Powell was also confident in his comments on Wednesday that he and his colleagues will be able to engineer a soft landing for the U.S. economy, that they'll be able to slow down the economy without causing a downturn. But some Wall Street economists are saying there's a greater likelihood of a recession. There's growing concern about stagflation when prices are high and the economy slows down sharply. That's not the prevailing view, but it's not being dismissed out of hand. And that goes to show how much fear is out there right now. Something I want to note is Powell was very clear about what the Fed can control and what it can't control. 
Just like investors, it's dealing with a lot of uncertainty and uncertainty in the global economy from the fallout from the war in Ukraine to China's crackdown on COVID, which is crimping demand and causing new supply chain issues. Now, you mentioned that the tech-heavy Nasdaq-led losses. What are the companies that are suffering the most right now? Yeah, by and large, companies that did really well during the pandemic. Uh, Higher interest rates tend to hit technology companies harder. They're fast-growing. They're dependent on debt. On Thursday, shares of Netflix, Amazon, and Meta, Facebook's parent company, all dropped by around 7%. And e-commerce companies are also falling. Wayfair closed down 25% and a half on Thursday. And Carvana, the used car company, down about 18%, Ari. So what should investors keep in mind as they watch these huge swings? Well, markets have been booming for years, and investors may have lost sight of the fact that markets go up and down. So I go back to the uniqueness of this moment. There's a lot of fear in the market, and quite frankly, there's a lot to be concerned about. Inflation is higher than many of us have seen in our lifetimes, and interest rates, which have been so low for so long, are rising at this pretty fast clip. Obviously, a recession is worst case, but there are some positive signs. People are spending. Unemployment has been low. But when it comes to markets, it's likely this volatility is going to be around for a while. And PR's David Gura, thank you. Thanks, Ari. People opposed to abortion say they're excited and sobered by this week's Supreme Court leak. Some are trying to keep emotions in check until the court issues its final ruling. But even if the court does overturn Roe versus Wade, abortion opponents say there will be more work to do. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports. Republican strategist Dina Bass-Williams teared up when she saw the leaked draft. She's ardently opposed abortion since she was a teenager. But then, after this decades-long fight, she says it felt like when the dog actually catches the car. It's kind of one of those situations where, because you never, ever thought it would happen in your lifetime, that now that it is actually happening, there will be a need to make it work. Part of that work will be winning over more people. Bass Williams is frustrated at media focus on how a majority of Americans support Roe v. Wade. Sure, she says, but many also support some limits. Getting rid of Roe would change the discussion, and she welcomes talking with abortion rights supporters about when they think life starts. You know, and I'll I'll whittle you down and move you back until conception. But if we can just, if you can just tell me when you believe that a baby is a baby inside of a woman's womb, then let's start with that conversation. Terry Herring is also ready for what she calls a heart battle. She heads Choose Life Mississippi, directs the state chapter of Americans United for Life, and has been an anti-abortion advocate for more than three decades. Abortion and Roe v. Wade has been our Goliath. Okay, so now we've slain Goliath, presumably. So after you slay Goliath, there are still a lot of Philistines. That's because doing away with Roe would send the issue back to all 50 states to decide. Mississippi is one of 13 states with so-called trigger laws. If Roe falls, they would automatically ban abortion with few exceptions. In that case, Herring says her focus will be helping women navigate pregnancies they didn't plan for. We have these 30 pregnancy resource centers, and to to really say now, today, are you prepared because the women are coming? Herring herself unexpectedly got pregnant at age 18. She says she understands the ONG of it, but she thinks as more limits kick in, women would start to see that it doesn't have to ruin your life. So what I'm looking forward to with the overturn of Roe v. Wade is a lot of people being in love with those babies that they weren't sure they wanted to have. Iowa is in a different place. 
Christy Judkins heads Iowa Right to Life. She says legal battles there led the state's Supreme Court to rule that there is a fundamental right to abortion. That is in place. So regardless of the overturn of Roe v. Wade, in Iowa, we still have work to do, which is um, promoting and making sure Iowans are aware of our Protect Life Amendment. That would change the state constitution to allow limits on abortion. It's been passed in the General Assembly, but will also need to pass in the next one. Of course, some Democratic-led states are already looking to boost abortion rights, even help women travel from other states for the procedure. So what about pushing for a national abortion ban? Republican strategist Bass Williams says yes, if at some point there's a filibuster-proof Republican majority Congress. But Terry Herring in Mississippi thinks that idea is a no-go. She asks, over the past half century, what did Republican Congresses do on abortion? Nil. Nothing. Nada. Okay? (laughs) Roe has given them a way out. They can say they're pro-life and do nothing. If Roe goes away, she says, politicians in every state will be forced to do something about abortion one way or the other. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Believe it or not, we've gone more than a month without the release of a Marvel movie. Morbius opened the 1st of April, and Thor Love and Thunder isn't coming out till July. But there is a bit of fan service opening this weekend. Here's critic Bob Mondello on Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Shortly after the opening credits, Dr. Stephen Strange is at a wedding, wearing a brave face as his beloved Christine marries someone else. Then, somewhat to his relief, I suspect, bravery of a more conventional Marvel sort is needed out in the streets of Lower Manhattan. A one-eyed octopus that could have escaped from Pixar's Monsters, Inc., except that it's the size of a small apartment building, seems intent on eating a bus. Strange quickly realizes it's actually trying to eat a teenaged girl on the bus and puts a stop to that with much flexing of wrists and assistance from Sorcerer Supreme Wong. The girl, once rescued, strikes Strange as familiar. Wasn't she in his dream the night before? Not a dream, she tells him. Another universe in which he was a somewhat less reliable Doctor Strange. Things just got out of hand. A multiverse traveler who's being chased by a demon, the girl's name is America Chavez, which means people will spend the rest of the movie saying things like, we have to save America, and is America okay? But never mind, the film has bigger fish to fry, that octopus for instance. So Strange, figuring he needs an ally, turns to an old pal. Wanda. Who's also known as the Scarlet Witch. I knew sooner or later you'd show up. I need your help. It's what? What do you know about the multiverse? Now, I know a little something about the multiverse and how it gives you alternate versions of yourself. Having caught last month's crazily inventive Everything Everywhere All at Once, that was not, strictly speaking, good preparation for Marvel's multiverse, partly because it's thought through, where Marvel's works hard at seeming random, and also because Marvel's is governed by different and extremely complicated rules, in addition to the more prosaic ones that have always bugged Wanda. You break the rules and become a hero. I do it, I become the enemy. 
doesn't seem fair. Be that as it may, she does get to act while the others are busy soaring past a block of hers and a paint of hers on their way to a flower-bedecked New York of hers. There are even end credits for a splinter unit, which makes sense after you've seen Wanda wreak havoc in a hall of mirrors. Whatever can be done with performers gesticulating in front of screens has definitely been done. You okay? Director Sam Raimi, who cut his teeth on the Evil Dead franchise before he went family-friendly with the first three Spider-Man films, will get his horror freak on by film's end. Corpses and wispy black smoke wraiths will go toe-to-rotting toe with the lightning bolt-tossing superhero types, but only after the filmmaker has dispensed with a full hour or so of explaining things. Multiverse is a concept about which we know frighteningly little. And that goes double for intricacies in The Dark Hold and The Book of Ishanti and variations between sorcery and witchcraft. I'll let you wade through those for yourself. And what about the good doctor? I never meant for any of this to happen. Well, by comparison with the unrestrained love that audiences have for, say, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange love, if you'll pardon that expression, seems limited. Not that Benedict Cumberbatch isn't hardworking. He brings a lot more intensity than you'd think possible to moving his fingers an inch or two as digital sparks fly. But his scripts have so far felt sort of second tier in the Marvel canon. And the script for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which is absolutely the most entertaining multiverse movie to come out so far in May, is no exception. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. And summer term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, the story behind Cinco de Mayo. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash GBFB, The Wilbur, featuring former U.S. Senator and stand-up comedian Al Franken, Saturday, May 14th. Tickets and information at thewilbur.com. And Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmerstoyou.com slash WBUR. The U.S. is approaching a grim milestone. One million dead from COVID-19. Millions more Americans trying to figure out how to live life without the person they loved. I had this very personal loss, and it was hyperlocal. You know, my dad died, you know, right around the corner from my house. But at the same time, he was number 52,000. Remembering the one million dead. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, is a day that's come to stand for a celebration of Mexican culture and heritage. But Cinco de Mayo is part of a much deeper story of two nations, Mexico and the U.S., trying to define themselves at a time when old empires were crumbling and borders were in flux. Hosts Ramtin Arblui and Rund Abdel-Fattah from our history podcast Throughline bring us this story. 
We're in the historic center of Mexico's capital, Mexico City, a massive city of over 8 million people, with tour guide Ismael Rivera. Hola, buenas tardes. My name is Ismael Rivera. I was born in Mexico City. I can't help but go on a historic tour of pretty much everywhere I visit now. Underneath here, there's three Aztec temples dedicated to the sun, to the wind, Ismael guides us through winding streets, past towering Gothic churches, ancient Aztec temple sites, ornately engraved Spanish colonial arches, a salsa class in one square, and a busy market with taco vendors every two feet. The smell is delicious, like unreal. And then we find ourselves in a quieter place, surrounded by tall trees, fountains with statues of Greek gods, and these vibrant purple flowers called jacarandas. This is Alameda Park. It was the first one in the American continent. Alameda Central Park was built in the 16th century. It sits right off of Cinco de Mayo Avenue. And Diego Rivera paints a mural about this, this park. Diego Rivera, who's considered one of the greatest Mexican painters of the 20th century, called this mural Sueño de una tarde dominical en la Alameda Central dream of a Sunday afternoon in Alameda Central. A replica of the mural stretches maybe 50 feet long across the side of a building at one end of the park. It's divided in different periods, pre-Spanish period, colonial period. The mural basically tells the entire history of Mexico from the fall of the Aztec Empire in the 16th century, when the Spanish conquerors arrived, to a revolution in the 20th century in images like a modern-day cave painting. It's a swirl of colors with a tightly packed crowd of people all along the bottom. The faces are indigenous, African, and European, central characters from Mexico's past. We're seeing a guy with the bloody hands. He's Hernán Cortés. The leader of the Spanish invasion. And the blood is the blood of the native people. And as you move right across the mural, you see the influence of Catholicism on Mexico. We see the nun. A nun in a black hooded veil. Then you see an American general in uniform. They were the war. war between the U.S. US and Mexico. Mexico. There's men in suits, gunslinging farmers in sombreros, women in Victorian gowns alongside women in traditional weeple dresses, including... Frida Kahlo. But perhaps the most striking character is a man who sits right around the middle of the mural and looms above all the other characters. He has a head of bright white hair with an impressive mustache to match and is dressed in a dark blue military uniform overrun with medals. He is Porfirio Diaz. Porfirio Diaz, the general who ruled Mexico for 35 years. Porfirio Diaz is at the center of the mural and of modern Mexican history, thanks to a single day in May. May 5th of 1862. May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. On that day, an epic battle was fought. A battle fought and won by Mexicans against foreign aggression. A battle that helped shape the future of Mexico and the U.S. And that battle is led by several generals, but one of them was Porfirio Diaz. That is what we celebrate when we celebrate Cinco de Mayo. This is Kelly Lytle Hernandez. She's a professor of history at UCLA and author of a new book called Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderland. Colorful dancers and dozens of bands will be performing up and down San Diego Avenue through the heart of 
So I grew up in San Diego, California, and oh gosh, you know, I don't know if I remember a lot about Cinco de Mayo outside of a couple school festivals, maybe a couple things at, at local fairs. As a child, you know, a regular African-American kid growing up in the borderlands, I witnessed a lot of what was happening um, around bo the border and immigration and border policing as I was growing up. But Kelly says she learned very little about Mexican history in school. And Cinco de Mayo remained this abstract thing, a fun party in the San Diego streets, divorced from a particular time and place, until she studied that history as an adult. What is Cinco de Mayo? Cinco de Mayo is a celebration of uh, the vict Mexican victory in one battle. Happening now, thousands flooding downtown Tulsa, celebrating Cinco de Mayo. And now it's uh, like St. Patrick's Day, you know. Bringing smiles and also big business to different restaurants. Cinco de Mayo sale, uh, cerveza, fiesta, whatever. This is Mauricio Tenorio Trio. He's a history professor at the University of Chicago. I'm also professor at the Centro de Investigación y Docencia Económica in Mexico City. Growing up in Mexico City, Mauricio had a similar experience to Kelly Lytle Hernandez, but in reverse, on the other side of the border. For a long time, he wasn't taught much about U.S. history. It's all about Mexico. Mexico, a very, you know, self-contained. And the problem is Mexico, the U.S., and Canada have shared a common history for a long time. And Cinco de Mayo is one of those things because it represents historically a common past between Mexican and Americans. A common past of two young border nations figuring out who to become in a rapidly changing world that was shedding old empires and making way for a new economic order. A past seen through wars, coups, revolutions, and of course, a history of migration across the border. Eventually, a generation after the first Mexican mass migration at the turn of the 20th century, Mexican-Americans in the U.S. reclaimed Cinco de Mayo as a symbol of anti-imperialist resistance, part of a budding Chicano movement in the U.S. And around the 1980s, beer companies saw Cinco de Mayo as a smart business strategy and helped the holiday go mainstream. Mauricio Tenorio Trio says the story of Cinco de Mayo and everything that followed reveals two countries that have been attached at the hip, connected since their founding by land, culture, business, and people, yet often in denial of the commonalities they share, both then and now. And at some point, we will look and find out that we have a common body, that the survival of one face or the other depends on the body. And there was no past, there is no person, and there will be no future if not common for the United States and Mexico. Throughline hosts Rund Abdel-Fattah and Rabtin Arablui brought us that story. You can listen to the complete Throughline Cinco de Mayo episode wherever you listen to podcasts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, Committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, 
dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose. Spanish and Mediterranean small plates and paellas. Dinner Tuesday through Sunday, lunch and brunch on weekends. Private parties welcome. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. If that was taken away from me, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what would happen, which is a terrifying thought. In Alabama, a federal judge is being asked to block a new state law that criminalizes gender-affirming treatments for minors. It's Thursday, May 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, how many transgender teenagers rely on hormone therapy? Also ahead, First Lady Jill Biden is departing on a trip to Eastern Europe to visit Ukrainian refugees, as well as U.S. personnel in the region. It's her most high-profile endeavor since her husband took office. And we'll have a conversation with journalist and activist Gloria Steinem about her reaction to news that the U.S. Supreme Court appears poised to strike down Roe versus Wade. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Justice Department has been and will continue to be committed to defending reproductive rights. Garland's comments coming as a leaked draft opinion shows the Supreme Court appears poised to strike down Roe v. Wade, which has guaranteed a constitutional right to abortion for 50 years. More from NPR's Ryan Lucas. Speaking at the Justice Department, Attorney General Merrick Garland declined to get into the merits of the leaked draft opinion, saying it is not a final decision of the court. But what I will say is that the Justice Department has steadfastly been committed to defending the right to abortion. As for what comes next? If the law changes, we will address appropriate next steps at that time. But what will not change is our commitment to defending the rights of women and all Americans. The Supreme Court's final decision is expected to be published in the next few months. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Senate Democrats appear to be moving closer to a vote on legislation that would codify abortion rights into federal law. Senate Democrat Maria Cantwell of Washington State saying both parties need to be placed on the record. This week was a political earthquake when it came to the Supreme Court. Now the American people deserve to hear and understand where every member of the United States Senate is on this issue. Cantwell referring to the leak of the draft opinion showing the court voting to overturn the 1973 decision legalizing abortion in the U.S. Senate Democrats are planning a vote for next week. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the vote, quote, one of the most important we will ever take. Elon Musk has raised more than $7 billion to go toward his planned Twitter takeover from investors, including an influential Saudi prince. 
As NPR's Bobby Allen explains, Musk's new financial backers mean less of his own wealth is tied to the purchase. A Security and Exchange Commission filing shows that Musk has lined up 19 new investors willing to pitch in toward his $44 billion deal to acquire Twitter. The largest source of funding is from Saudi prince Al-Walid bin Talal. He already had a nearly $2 billion stake in Twitter, but now he's agreed to keep it with Musk planning to take the company private. Other major investors include Oracle co-founder Larry Ellison, who's committed to pony up $1 billion. The cryptocurrency exchange Binance.com is also chipping in. While Twitter has formally accepted Musk's offer, the deal awaits approval from federal regulators. It could take months for the deal to close. Bobby Allen, NPR News, San Francisco. Wall Street had one of its best days in years yesterday. Today, it had one of its worst. Blue chips ending the session down more than 1,000 points or more than 3%. Things were even tougher for the broader market in the tech sector. In the case of tech stocks, a sell-off sent the Nasdaq down nearly 5%. Yesterday's market rally came on the heels of a move by the Fed to raise interest rates. Today's major downturn came as traders started to worry about the effect. The Nasdaq was down 647 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The effort to allow undocumented immigrants to get a Massachusetts driver's license just moved forward on Beacon Hill. 32 members having voted in the affirmative, 8 in the negative. The bill is passed to be engrossed. As expected, the Massachusetts Senate this afternoon passed legislation which is similar to the bill passed in the House earlier this year. Senator Adam Gomez of Springfield led the effort. He told the chamber, we have reached the finish line. Allowing parents to drive their kids to school take them to doctor's appointments, all without the concern that they may be separated if they are pulled over. Governor Baker is concerned non-citizens will use the special licenses to register to vote. Supporters say they have enough votes to override a veto. Suffolk Construction has halted work on all of its projects in Boston in order to conduct a safety review. The move comes a day after three workers were injured at a work site in South Boston. All three are being treated for non-life-threatening injuries. In a statement, Suffolk says their voluntary shutdown will continue through tomorrow while it evaluates safety standards and procedures. Senator Elizabeth Warren says she has a plan to close corporate tax loopholes. She's proposing a minimum 15 percent tax on the income companies report on their financial statements to shareholders, not what is reported to the IRS. Warren says all 50 Democrats and the president support this measure. No, we haven't gotten it all the way through. But anytime you've got something that you can raise revenue on and you've got a majority, I believe this is going to happen. Warren says CEO salaries and bonuses are based on the profits companies report to shareholders, and so their taxes should be as well. Authorities in New Hampshire are offering up to $5,000 for information that leads to the arrest and indictment of whoever killed a Concord couple. The bodies of Stephen and Jowende Reed were found along a trail near their home last month. Police say they've received more than 130 tips since the bodies were discovered. Sports Red Sox got shut out this afternoon over at Fenway, 8 to nothing. the final score there. The forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight. The lows around 47 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Chance of rain in the midday. The highs near 64. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Parents of transgender youth are asking a federal judge in Alabama to block a new state law that criminalizes gender-affirming treatments for minors, such as puberty blockers or hormone therapy. 
They say the law set to take effect on Sunday is unconstitutional. NPR's Debbie Elliott has been listening to arguments in Montgomery and joins us now. Hi, Debbie. Hi there, Ari. What's the legal issue in this case? Well, this is whether Alabama's ban on gender-affirming medical care discriminates against transgender youth and whether it infringes on parental autonomy. This law would make it a felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison for parents to seek or doctors to prescribe medicines or perform surgery intended to alter a minor child's sex assigned at birth or to delay puberty. It also uh, requires school officials to notify parents if a child discloses that they are transgender in their classes. Now, the families who filed this lawsuit say allowing this law to go into effect on Sunday will cause irreparable harm, and the U.S. Justice Department agrees and has intervened in the case. So what was the argument that lawyers for the families made today? Well, they started with expert witnesses, uh, including mental health counselor Linda Hawkins. Uh, She oversees Gender and Sexuality Development Clinic at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She said it would be devastating to deny this treatment to transgender youth, especially those who are currently on either puberty blockers or hormone therapy. She said it would be like removing someone's cancer treatment. Hawkins said without this medical care for youth who have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, it can become what she described as a daily suicide watch that devastates families. Now, some of the plaintiffs themselves, including transgender minors, are also testifying, but they're doing that privately before the judge and not in open court. How does the state defend this law? The state won't be presenting its witnesses until tomorrow, but we did get sort of a sense of where they're going during cross-examination today. Alabama Solicitor General Edmund LaCour asked one witness, why is it policy to say ban female genital mutilation for minors or to require someone to be 18 to get a vasectomy, but not for hormone therapy that carries a risk of infertility? Now, the Republican sponsors of the law say that youth are not old enough to make these kinds of decisions. Alabama's Attorney General Steve Marshall has said calling gender-affirming care medically necessary is ideologically driven. Now, transgender issues have emerged as a political wedge in many states, including Texas and Arkansas, and now Alabama's the latest. So what's been the reaction more broadly outside of the courthouse? You know, uh, this morning before the hearing began, I spoke with Evan Marino and his mom, who were here to witness this, and they want to see the law blocked. He's an 18-year-old high school senior from Birmingham who is taking testosterone. If this law goes into effect, he could not continue that therapy until he's 19, which is what the law requires. And it is something that has saved so many people regardless and has made my life so much easier. And if I, if that was taken away from me, I don't know what, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what would happen, which is a terrifying thought. So there are families grappling with this all over the state. The federal judge here will be deciding whether to enjoin Alabama's law from taking effect on Sunday so that these families can pursue their lawsuit. NPR's Debbie Elliott covering that lawsuit in Montgomery. Thank you. You're welcome. Tonight, First Lady Jill Biden heads to Eastern Europe. She's planning to meet with U.S. troops and Ukrainian refugees in Slovakia and Romania. On Sunday, she'll visit the Slovakia-Ukraine border. As NPR's Scott Detrow reports, it's the most high-profile moment yet for the First Lady. 
First Lady Jill Biden set the tone for how she would approach her new job two days into the Biden presidency. She showed up at the U.S. Capitol to hand out chocolate chip cookies to National Guardsmen and women who were protecting the building after the January 6th attacks. I just wanted to come today to say thank you to all of you for keeping me and my family safe. The First Lady told the soldiers that the Bidens were a National Guard family. Beau Biden served in the Delaware National Guard. Just like when she was second lady during the Obama administration, Biden has put a lot of focus on helping other military families. She's also traveled the country promoting COVID vaccines, often alongside the second gentleman. Please, if you're listening, this is Doug Emhoff and um, I'm Jill Biden, and we want to encourage everybody here in Texas to go and get the vaccine. But most of Biden's public efforts have focused on education. She's been a teacher her entire adult life. When she spoke at the 2020 Democratic National Convention, it was from one of the first classrooms she taught in. I have always loved the sounds of a classroom, the quiet that sparks with possibility just before students shuffle in. In fact, Anina McBride says one of the most important things Biden has done during her time in the White House is keep her full-time job as a community college professor in Virginia. McBride is an expert on the office of the First Lady and served as Laura Bush's chief of staff. It's kind of a strange job, she says. That has no position description, and each person gets to rewrite that uh, uh, job description in the way that suits them. By keeping her day job and effectively working two full-time jobs, McBride says Jill Biden is charting a new course that future First Ladies or First Gentlemen could follow. The trip to Slovakia and Romania, McBride says, is more of a classic use of the symbolism of the role. Biden is signaling America's commitments by showing up and bringing media attention with her in two countries who have taken in hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees and have also served as a staging ground for NATO's military support for Ukraine. More importantly, too, is a validation that the United States is not going to forget the Ukrainian people, and and also the allied countries that are helping Ukrainian refugees. And within that mission, Biden will continue to focus on education. In both Romania and Slovakia, she'll visit schools that have taken in Ukrainian refugees and talk to the teachers who are helping new Ukrainian students settle in. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington. San Francisco is known for the bay, the bridge, the hills, and now self-driving cars. More and more of them are picking up riders on the city's streets. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen went to check them out. A video went viral last month. In it, San Francisco police pull over a car with its headlights off. As officers approach the vehicle, someone shouts at them. Ain't nobody in it. Ain't nobody in it. Now, I'm watching the video of the bewildered police officers with UC Berkeley transportation researcher Stephen Schladover. One of them looking on the driver's side, one looking in the front, and I guess this is where they've realized there's no driver in the vehicle. When the officers walk away, the car pulls ahead and parks with its hazards on. I believe the vehicle actually responded quite well. Which is a relief to Mo El-Shahani. He's an engineering executive at Cruise, the General Motors-owned self-driving car company. It was one of his company's cars that police were pulling over, and the technology worked as it was supposed to. He says roads would be safer if more cars were self-driving. Your cars would never get angry or tired or frustrated or do a California roll on on a stop sign. Self-driving car companies have been promising for years that we're on the cusp of a driverless car future. And it just hasn't happened. 
But in San Francisco, the technology has hit a milestone. Fully self-driving cars have gotten approval to taxi people around. So I thought I'd give it a try. Cruise has an application process, and I wasn't selected. So I tried Waymo, the company owned by Google. Please buckle up. These fully electric white Jaguars tricked out with all sorts of high-tech cameras and sensors are everywhere in the city. But only employees and a select group of others get to ride in these here. For me, the Waymo car has a safety driver. What's your name? I'm Lindsay. Lindsay, how's it going? Good, good. As we're driving around, I ask Waymo spokeswoman Sandy Karp, who's sitting next to me, so Lindsay really isn't driving? No, so the Waymo driver or the technology is... What do you mean, Waymo? What do you mean, Waymo driver? What do you mean by that? So the Waymo driver is what we call our autonomous driving suite. So, the so a robot. Exactly, the robot. <laughs> it was kind of confusing to me that she kept calling the software operating the car the Waymo driver. From the outside, you'd never know that Lindsay wasn't doing anything but sitting there. Sure, it looks like she's driving, but she's not. And the ride was smooth. There was just one thing that stuck out to me. Right now. So 23 miles per hour. That's what people complain about, that these cars go too slow. So we also want to provide a comfortable driving experience for our riders. So what we've heard from our riders is that when you're barreling down a hill, they'd actually prefer to go a little slower. This, after all, is San Francisco, a city known for its dramatic hills. Waymo's cars have been trained to take them extra cautiously. The short spin in the robot Jaguar was over, and we got out. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It makes sense that the nation's tech hub would be on the forefront of robo-taxis. And one other place, the Phoenix, Arizona area, also has self-driving cars buzzing around. But for the most part, self-driving cars are not common around the U.S. I asked UC Berkeley researcher Schladover when self-driving cars will be able to go everywhere and do everything human drivers can do. The answer for that one is probably never. There are tons of regulations, these cars are expensive to operate, the technology is complicated, and it's just not there yet. Schladover says it's really hard to train a computer to learn the nuance of human driving. Eye contact and gestures that other road users use to communicate with each other to coordinate their use of the road space. Recently, I was in an Uber at a stoplight, and to our left and to our right pulled up Waymo Jaguars with nobody in the driver's seat. I asked my Uber driver, do you worry these cars are going to put you out of a job? And he responded, no, because I know how to fix a flat. Bobby Allen, NPR News, San Francisco. Support for All Tech Considered comes from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 70 degrees in Boston at 518. Ahead on All Things Considered, feminist leader Gloria Steinem addresses the likelihood that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. That's ahead here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Red's Best, committed to sustainably sourced fish, shellfish, and sushi from the Boston Fish Pier, delivered to your home or for local pickup. More at redsbest.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. 
Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. In business news, the Steamship Authority is taking its high-speed ferry, Iano, out of service for repairs. The authority says it's likely the ferry's trips between Hyannis and Nantucket will be canceled tomorrow as well. Big losses on Wall Street today as markets worry that the Fed's plans to fight inflation with higher rates will slow the economy. The Dow lost 3%, over 1,000 points, to close at 32,998. NASDAQ was off 5%, or 647 points, at 12,318, and the S&P 500 down 3.5% to 4,147. Locally, some stocks fell as well. BJ's Wholesale Club closed down 4%. Department store giant TJX companies dropped more than 3.5%. Thermo Fisher Scientific dropped 2.3%, while General Electric closed down just over 2 points. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com. In the forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight. The lows around 47 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of rain in the midday. The highs will be around 64. Right out 70 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. What should the next move be for abortion rights supporters in the wake of news this week that the Supreme Court may be poised to strike down Roe versus Wade? When feminist icon Gloria Steinem came to the phone today, we asked her. Some of us might go and support our local Planned Parenthood clinic, or we can wear buttons, we can carry banners. We each probably have a, a, a very uh, fervent way of doing it, and I think, you know, it's very important that we state our opinion. Gloria Steinem is in her late 80s now. She spent a lifetime fighting for women's rights, including the right to control their own reproductive choices. So I asked her reaction to this leaked draft suggesting that conservative justices may be aligning to overturn federal legal protection for abortion. Gloria Steinem, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. I've missed you. (laughs) (laughs) Let me begin with the very obvious, basic question. What's your reaction? What went through your mind when you heard the news this week of this leaked document, which suggests the Supreme Court may be about to overturn Roe versus Wade? It felt uh, both new and angering and ancient. You know, I think there have always been efforts to control women's birth giving since uh, women have given birth for thousands of years. I mean, I remember sitting in the Kalahari Desert talking to women who were showing me the plants that they used for abortifacients and to increase fertility. I mean, you know, this is not a new issue. 
And the very definition of patriarchy is trying to control women and birth giving. So that's the ancient part. And the new part, just that after, I know for you, uh, wondering, worrying whether this was the direction things would go, here we are. Well, I think it's important to connect the ancient to the new, because otherwise we don't understand the strong thread of patriarchy and racism that has been with us and continues to be with us. Obviously, one in three American women, more or less, has had an abortion, needed an abortion in her lifetime, and that's not going to stop. It's completely wrong, as the great Florence Kennedy used to say, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. Uh, But we have to contend with it, and we will. You've laid out some of the consequences, but I guess big picture, you've argued for, for decades that access to reproductive freedom is key to equality. What do you see as the impact of potentially striking down Roe? I mean, setting aside abortion and the right to an abortion or not, just for the right of women to be seen as, treated as equal citizens under the U.S. Constitution? It's a huge impact potentially on women because we have to be able to make decisions about our own physical selves. It's a very differential impact on women depending on what part of the country they're in, what their economic situation is, what their race is, ethnicity. It affects all women, but not all women equally. But I do note in all the um, surveys that all women are devoted (laughs) to uh, making sure we maintain reproductive freedom. So the core of Justice Alito's argument, uh, Justice Alito, who wrote this draft majority opinion, is that the Constitution makes no mention of abortion, that that ruling back in 1973 invented a right, and that it is time to, and I'll quote his words, return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. I mean, in the United States, the states do decide all kinds of things. What is wrong with letting states decide this? Well, his comment that this is not mentioned in the Constitution is ridiculous since women weren't mentioned in the Constitution. It's quite possible that reproductive freedom would have been up there with freedom of speech uh, if everyone had uh, had an an equal say. Um, But medical needs should not be distributed geographically. They're way too distributed by class and economics as it is, because we don't have national health care as we should. And this makes it um, far worse for the female half of the population. Was there any part of Justice Alito's argument that that resonated to you in any way? No, (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, I'll go back and look, but I, I couldn't find any, no. No, and I'm sure you read it closely. I guess I wonder for you personally, this is a fight you have fought your whole career. Um, you have had an abortion, which I mentioned because you've been very public about it. I've talked to you about it on air. Um, does it feel like you're watching your life's work be struck down? No, I don't feel uh, our, my work or the, the work of all the women and men who care about racial and sex equality has been struck down. It's just that it has a roadblock now, theoretically coming from the highest court in the land, but actually uh, will impose hardships unequally 
but will not change the fact that we either have decision-making power over our own bodies, women and men, or there is no democracy. When I interviewed you last, back in December, I asked whether you still thought you'd be fighting this fight in 2021, which it then was. Um, Allow me to update the question. Did you think you'd still be fighting this fight in 2022? (laughs) Uh, Yes, because again, A, we still live in some degree of patriarchy, and B, women have the unique power of giving birth means that there are likely to be this and other ways of patriarchal efforts to control the bodies of women. It is much different from my earlier days, you know, when abortion was way more likely to be illegal and way more difficult to find. We have made a lot of progress and we have made a lot of progress in contraception and the morning after pill and many ways of, of making sure that we don't need to have abortions. This is not a pleasurable experience. Women don't get up in the morning and say, it's a nice day. I think, you know, it's uh, not a, an experience that any woman would choose unless she had to. Oh. It's very striking listening to you. You still sound as determined and is convinced that individuals can make a difference in in turning the course of this country and its laws as you ever did. Yes, yes, of course. I mean, one thing I've learned over time, over and over again, that politics and deep change and, you know, everything we're trying to do is like a tree. And too often we think the tree grows from the top, from Congress. Trees grow from the bottom. (laughs) So what you and I do every day, what's possible in our community. We could thank the physicians who are supporting and providing reproductive freedom. We can give money to the elected figures who are supporting this vast majority view. And we can just, you know, refuse to be intimidated by the protestations of a losing minority. Journalist and activist Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 70 degrees in Boston at 529. Coming up on All Things Considered, the American Academy of Pediatrics is calling to end race-based medicine, wherein doctors sometimes use race as a factor to determine what treatment patients receive. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. And Boston Lyric Opera presenting Grammy Award-winning Terrence Blanchard's Champion and Opera in Jazz. Cutler Majestic Theater, May 18th through 22nd, blo.org. I'm Tiziana Deering, and I want to share a little something with you. I am happier and better when I feel connected to my community. Radio Boston does that. Our show is where the town hall meets the kitchen table. And starting Monday morning, we go live at 11 a.m. 
Join me for Radio Boston weekdays at 11 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better together. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Senate is expected to vote next week to codify the right to an abortion. The move is in response to a leaked draft showing the U.S. Supreme Court is prepared to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision. Speaking on the Senate floor today, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer once again took aim at Republican-led efforts to dismantle the law. Republican politicians across the country are passing laws telling the women of America, your body, our choice. So much for the party of limited government. And all week we've seen Republicans try to duck, dodge, and dip from their responsibility for bringing Roe to the brink of total repeal. This is about to change. The vote scheduled for next Wednesday will mostly be symbolic, given that Democrats don't have the required 60 votes to bypass a Republican filibuster. Inflation fears prompted a major sell-off on Wall Street today, taking the Dow Jones Industrial Average down as much as 1,100 points earlier in the day. NPR's David Gura reports at the close the Dow was down more than 3 percent. The Nasdaq Composite dropped more than 5 percent. The deep declines come a day after the Federal Reserve decided to raise interest rates by half a percentage point, its biggest rate hike in more than two decades. The Fed said it plans to increase interest rates more as it intensifies its fight against surging inflation. But investors worry the rate hikes will be too aggressive and they'll end up tipping the economy into a deep recession. The Fed's made it clear it wants to avoid that. Its goal is to slow down the economy just enough to bring down inflation. Raising interest rates, however, is never an exact science, and investors are now bracing for the worst. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Recapping stocks on Wall Street today, the Dow was down to 1,063 points at the close. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Suffolk Construction today stopped work on all of its Boston job sites for what it calls a safety stand down. The move comes a day after three employees were injured while working at the old Boston Edison plant in South Boston. Suffolk says the stoppage will allow it to evaluate procedures and reinforce safety awareness. The work stoppage will continue through tomorrow. A former leader of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe will be sentenced for bribery and extortion involving the tribe's long-planned casino. Cedric Cromwell was convicted today of receiving tens of thousands of dollars in a scheme that granted large contracts to a Rhode Island architecture firm. The firm's owner was also found guilty. More communities are reporting thieves are targeting catalytic converters in cars and trucks. The device helps convert toxic gases from a vehicle's exhaust into less toxic pollutants. Bridgewater Police Chief Chris Del Monte says the converters also contain precious metals that makes them attractive to thieves. If they're getting high value for these converters, then they're going to make it more attractive to steal. And the other issue that's tied to that is not only economics, but it's ease of being able to obtain them and how many and you know how quickly they can be converted. Del Monte says investigators are working to identify the secondhand shops buying the converters. The state appeals court ruled today a church cannot move bodies buried in its cemetery against the wishes of family. The Episcopal Church of the Holy Spirit in Wayland voted to close in 2015, and as part of a deal to sell the property, it had to move its graveyard. The judge approved the relocation of the remains. Now the appeals court is sending the case back to the lower court.
Boston is looking for a hundred local artists to help beautify the city by painting utility boxes. The Office of Arts and Culture announced today the paint box program is accepting applications for its 14th year. Public Art Project Manager Amber Torres says this year participation is restricted to those who live and work in Boston. Boston is known as a very amazing city for the arts. We have amazing institutions and organizations, but we also have amazing artists living among us. And so that's another goal of the program is really to just highlight those artists. In the past, the city commissioned arts from across the state. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities. The Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. Red Sox lost this afternoon to the Angels, 8 to nothing. the final score there. In the forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight. The lows around 47, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Chance of rain in the midday, the highs around 64. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning, from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. The American Academy of Pediatrics has called for an end to, quote, race-based medicine. This week, the Academy said it will revise all its policies and guidelines to eliminate language suggesting that races have underlying biological differences that should be factored in medical treatments. NPR health correspondent Ritu Chatterjee is here to tell us more. Hi, Ritu. Hey, Adrian. First of all, what does race-based medicine mean? So, you know, going back to how races were originally defined, um, you know, was based on the superficial differences between people, primarily skin color. And the assumption was that those superficial differences reflected real genetic or biological differences, which we now know is not true, but that thinking has persisted in medicine and modern medicine still uses race as sort of a proxy for biology. That in turn has influenced uh, the kind of care people get. Race is a proxy for biology. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, so I spoke with Dr. Joseph Wright, uh, who's one of the authors of the statement put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, and he's at the University of Maryland. And one example he gave me was that, you know, doctors are less likely to use this gold standard test um, for black kids uh, for urinary tract infections. The hypothesis was it seems that uh, black children have a lower incidence of urinary tract infection than white children. And, you know, this came out of two small studies, but they haven't really been replicated nationally or internationally. And yet this continues to dictate how doctors treat kids. Huh. Okay. well, there are still, though, uh, huge racial Mm -hmm. inequities that we see in health outcomes in the United States. I mean, during the pandemic, communities of color saw many more COVID cases and deaths when compared with white communities. Uh, So how does the, the academy factor that in or does it? 
So the Academy is trying to address those inequities, right? This is part of that effort. And we know that race has a major influence on health, not because uh, races are different, uh, in terms of their biology, but because they determine people's social circumstances through systemic uh, racism. So where you live, whether you have access to transportation, good jobs, access to healthcare. And Wright says doctors need to know these things. We are not at all suggesting that we ignore the impact of race on health outcomes. I think we're all you know, quite clear that race is certainly a role to play in the health status of individuals. And he thinks that addressing those social things, um, factors, is important for health equity. And there are other efforts too, by the way. One significant one is by the board that certifies pediatricians. And that board has added questions about these um, factors to the board exam. And the effort was led by Dr. Yusuf Tashani, who's a pediatrician in California's Bay Area. We had questions on microaggressions, we had questions on immigration, questions on racism, uh, mental health. So, so Ritu, are these que- uh, efforts likely to, to change how pediatricians treat their patients? I put the question to Dr. Brittany James, a family physician um, in Chicago. Here's what she told me. Really what's so exciting about this is one, that it's action instead of just words, which is really has been the status quo in the field, but also that we know that this could be a, likely be a domino effect and it opens the door for accountability to other orgs. NPR's Ritu and so Chatterjee. she's optimistic. Oh, sorry for cutting yeah, you thanks. off. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Talks to revive the 2015 nuclear deal between Iran and world powers have never gone smoothly, and that's been especially true in recent days. The war in Ukraine distracted the countries involved just as it seemed a deal might be near, and Iran made a new demand that the U.S. drop its terror designation of a powerful wing of Iran's military. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the issue is putting years of diplomatic work to the test. The Biden administration still believes the 2015 nuclear agreement is worth restoring as a means of ensuring that Iran doesn't acquire a nuclear weapon. But in New York, as the U.S. this month assumed the rotating presidency of the U.N. Security Council, Ambassador Linda Greenfield-Thomas told reporters that diplomacy is not the only avenue Washington is prepared to pursue. And we don't have an agreement just yet, and it's possible we might not get there. Of course, if diplomacy does not succeed, then we'll continue to work very closely with others in the international community to increase pressure on Iran. But Iran is applying pressure of its own, demanding that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, a branch of the Iranian military, be taken off the U.S. list of foreign terrorist organizations. The IRGC supports militias around the region, but Iran's leaders see it as essential to protecting the revolutionary government in Tehran. Sanam Vakil, an analyst with the London-based Chatham House think tank, says removing the foreign terrorist designation wouldn't make any practical difference in the tools the U.S. would have to deal with the IRGC. But it's symbolically important. And she says Tehran thinks now, with Washington focused on Russia's war in Ukraine, is a good time to press for any advantage it can get. Tehran sees Biden as distracted with the war, rightly so, weakened at home in advance of the midterm elections, and is very worried that 2024 will bring back President Trump and concerned that the deal will only be a two-year deal rather than a more durable deal. Without a resolution to the IRGC question that both sides can live with, she adds, the odds against restoring the nuclear deal grow significantly. 
And even if it is restored and limits Iran's nuclear program in exchange for economic sanctions relief, the agreement, known as the JCPOA, is unlikely to be seen by politicians on either side as a big victory. And so politicians and policymakers in Iran are less willing to go out on a limb for what they see to be a weak JCPOA. And I think some of the same challenges exist in Washington. Henry Rome, Iran analyst at the Washington-based Eurasia Group, agrees that the odds of restoring the agreement have been going down in recent weeks. But he says both sides think it's worth saving. I think a deal is still a bit more likely than not. I still see a lot of interest from the U.S. side and still some interest from the Iranian side in making this happen. But it's going to require a really concerted, creative, diplomatic effort to bridge this final issue here. Rome says U.S. regional allies, including Saudi Arabia and Israel, are highly critical of the deal's failure to address the actions of Iran and its proxy militias, and they would see a decision to lift the IRGC terrorist designation as a worrying signal about Washington's commitment to the region if and when the deal is restored. But in Tehran, he says, the designation is seen quite differently. I think from the Iranian government's point of view, the designation is a key part of the maximum pressure campaign that President Trump waged against Iran, and therefore that needs to go as well. So it's a tricky one. He says what Washington is looking for is a commitment from Iran to reduce its support for militias in the region. Rome also says it would be wrong to assume that the current stalemate can simply continue for weeks or months to come. It wouldn't take much, he says, to ratchet up tensions. So I would expect over the coming weeks a lot of energetic efforts from intermediaries, especially the Europeans, but also regional states, to try to find some creative way around this. Meanwhile, Iran continues to enrich uranium to 60% purity, close to weapons-grade fuel. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Millions of kids struggle to read. To help them learn, some schools have gone all in on one of the world's most widely used reading intervention programs. But according to a new federally funded study, that program may be doing more harm than good. Emily Hanford of APM Reports has done a lot of reporting on how schools teach children to read. Hi, Emily. Hi. Let's start with this program. What's it called and how do schools use it? The program is called Reading Recovery. It's for first graders who are having the hardest time learning how to read. Those kids get one-on-one instruction with a teacher who has gone through extensive training in reading recovery methods. And those methods are controversial. I did a reporting project back in 2019 where I showed that some of the strategies kids are taught in reading recovery are actually the strategies that struggling readers use to get by. In other words, kids are taught to read the way that poor readers read. But before this new study, existing research on reading recovery had shown the program was effective, at least in the short term. Kids made large positive gains in first grade. Okay, so there was evidence that it worked in the short term, but this new study took a longer view. What did it show? Right. So a big question about reading recovery has always been whether those short-term gains translate into long-term success. This is the largest, most rigorous study to look at that question. It focused on how third and fourth graders did on state reading tests. And what the study found is that the kids who got reading recovery actually did worse than a comparison group. And do researchers know why that is? 
The researchers cannot say exactly why, but they have some ideas. One hypothesis is that kids in the program can seem like good readers in first grade, but reading recovery may fail to teach them the skills they need to be good readers in the long run. Another possibility is that they did worse because of instruction that they got or didn't get after the first grade. Henry May is the lead author of the study, and he was surprised by the negative results. Was reading recovery harmful? I wouldn't go so far as to say that. But what we do know is that the kids that got it, for some reason, they ended up losing their gains and then falling behind where they would have been expected to fall. The Reading Recovery Council of North America is the organization that advocates for reading recovery in the United States. In a statement about the study, they disputed some of the methodology, and they maintained that their program is effective. And in the meantime, are schools still using the program? Yes, they are, and it's an expensive program. It can cost more than $10,000 a year per child. At one point, it was in every state, but some districts have been dropping reading recovery. In fact, the very first U.S. district to use the program back in 1984 was Columbus, Ohio, and they recently decided to stop using it. I talked to their executive director of teaching and learning. She told me the decision to drop reading recovery is part of a larger effort to bring what's been dubbed the science of reading to Columbus City Schools. She and her colleagues realized that their approach to reading instruction, including reading recovery, didn't align well with that science. Her name is Leslie Kelly, and I asked her what advice she had for other districts still using reading recovery. I would say be open, do your research, read a lot, and really look at do you have evidence of impact? That's really the key. Do you have evidence of impact and how do you know? And if you don't have evidence of impact, you have to ask yourself why. And then what are you going to do about it? There are many districts and even entire states right now that are looking carefully at how schools teach reading. And we know that COVID has had a big impact on kids' reading development. This new research is something for policymakers and school leaders to consider as they make decisions about what programs to invest in. That's Emily Hanford of APM Reports. Thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, a conversation with actress, writer, and entrepreneur Brooke Shields about her effort to embrace aging. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where specialists in your type of cancer create personalized care plans just for you. Learn more at youhaveus.org. And Peabody Essex Museum with Zachary Logan Remembrance, featuring drawings and sculpture that use the enduring language of flowers to meditate on the cyclical nature of life, death, and rebirth. Open Saturday. Tickets at pem.org. Join On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty on Friday, May 13th for a city space conversation on the future of AI and robots. Free tickets at wbur.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Zevin Asset Management, working to align investments with values like economic justice, human rights, and climate action. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And so I think when you think about what the United States is going to look like after Roe, you're going to end up with a lot of all or nothing and not a lot of these states that are kind of deeply engaging in this complicated middle ground where we see a lot of the public would like politicians to be. 
I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Our next guest has been in showbiz since she was 11 months old. 11 months. That is when Brooke Shields took her first turn before the cameras as the face of Ivory Soap. More ads followed than movie deals, TV, stage, and almost always documenting her every move, paparazzi. Shields grew up in the public eye, and now she is aging in the public eye, and she wants to talk about it. At the top of her list, the idea that women in their 50s are not represented in lots of places, including advertising. Why are we forgotten? And we're forgotten just in this middle chunk because there's 20s and then there are people, you know, say more in the more aged, aged or geriatric world, you know, and it's like you go from sexy to depends. And there's this whole margin in the middle that (laughs) is actually quite a few decades in the middle there. Yeah, quite a few decades in the middle that are vibrant. I always say I don't like to talk about it as aging as much as vitality. And Brooke Shields is on a mission to highlight the vitality of women over 50. She started an online community, signed with the winemaker Claude Dubois to rebrand Chardonnay. And the one-time face and body of Calvin Klein jeans is doing ads for Jordache. I read that you told them, do not even think about retouching this. I want people to see my body and the way it looks as I'm 56. Why? Um, A, because I worked really hard to get to that picture-ready place. And you know what? Sure. It's, it's You look at yourself with a filter and a this and a that or whatever, and you're like, oh, okay. Then you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, okay, not the same. <laughs> yeah. Don't look the same, but, but what am I going to do? You know, it was brilliant lighting. It was an amazing photographer, hair and makeup and wardrobe. Everybody was on top of their game. So I was very secure within what was going to be represented. What I didn't want was to be made thinner. Um, I did lose weight, you know, hit it a bit harder. I worked every day. You know, I had to work at 5 a.m. because that was the only time that I could get Um, this training session. And I worked really hard for it. You know, I don't look skin and bones. I, I just didn't want to be on, I didn't want to be on dishonest with how much work I put in to doing it and saying, why can't I be sexy at this age? Well, I, in the interest of full honesty, will say I, you, you you look gorgeous in this ad. I also was like, you're, you're Brooke Shields. You're more gorgeous than the rest of us combined, whether you were getting up and working out at 5am or not. And even you had to do that. I mean, that's, that's the reality. And I wondered, you know, I, I could work out at 5am every day for the rest of my life. I'm not going to look like you do in Jordache jeans. Do you worry at all about that, about the like women, whatever age we are in the unrealistic body expectations that get put out there. Listen, I, I, it is all true. You know, I, I can't apologize for what I look like, but I know that I've worked hard at it and I've made sure that I wasn't just that. And it's about, it's about the dialogue that you have with your children, with people. It's about aligning with companies that do believe in body inclusivity. I'm one version of, of that. I can say that this is my age, you know, this is my age and this is where I am today. I'm having my own, I have to find my own pride in my own shape 
and it looks different now than it did. Yeah. You know, when I was, everything was all up higher. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's a special resonance in talking to you, Brooke Shields, about doing a, a jeans ad because you're of course starred in one of the most famous jeans ads ever, the Calvin Klein ad mm -hmm. from 1980, um, which was controversial then because you were so young, it would be more controversial today. Um, I wondered as I watched you, you know, in this new, very sexy ad, I mean, you're wearing jeans and nothing else, right? You're barefoot, oh. it's you're topless, <laughs> it's shot from behind. Um, how has your understanding of that, of, of wanting to be in an ad where you are, where it is all about the sex appeal. How has that changed over what, 42 years? I think it's probably the first time I've ever felt the sex appeal. Hmm. You know, you don't, you can't really feel it at 15. It was all about doing a really good job. When I did it, I did not own the sexuality of it in the same way that I understand it and do now. And it's taken me a lot longer. I have a very fraught, you know, historical relationship with sexuality and virginity and, uh, you know, all of that for decades. Now I understand it differently. So it's, I'm much more inclined to do something that is more overtly sexual that I understand. And own because it. I, yeah. I own it now. It's mine, you know? How do you think about the line? Is there a line? I think about this all the time between wanting to look good and wanting to look young because it's so ingrained that they're the same thing. Ooh, that's hard. Yeah. That is a, that's hard because, you know, it's like, it's one thing to say, oh, you know, these wrinkles are from laughter and everybody's like, oh, that's good. You know? Okay. Yeah. But they weren't there then. And I look at my little baby girl's faces and they are just flawless. It's like, I gaze at them and then I think, oh, wait a minute. I was once that I didn't even know it. So then I look at myself and I think, okay, now I don't look like I did in my twenties and, and my skin is looser, my butt's lower, my love handles. And you know what I mean? It's like, you yeah. look at all those and you take them apart. And then you look at these sort of nubile bodies that are just emerging into these incredible women. And you're just like, oh my God, I have to be careful not to compare myself. And you know, the thing for me, that's more important than the look of it is I'm partially broken down. Like my knees are bad, you know, weight loss is more difficult. Yeah. I can't drink in the same way that I used to, even though I love it as much as I mean, actually more than I ever did. Those are the kind of things that I, that I'm fighting more than just what I look like in the mirror. What do you want women to hear from watching you feeling conflicted and wrestling with all of this still, uh, at this, at this point at 56 and still living your life so much in the public eye? Because I don't think there's any shame. There's no shame in being older, in getting older. There's a sense of pride, I think, that comes with it. But I don't want to wait for that pride to have to look like ancient wisdom. You know, I'm not stopping a thing I love doing. Yes, I'm limited in a lot of the physical activity, but I'm still going, I'm still taking on new jobs. There is still more to come. And this is all a part of it. So I want that message to be out there because I want, especially women over a certain age in their fifties to feel like they are at a new beginning, you know, just because their ovaries are not producing babies anymore. Are they supposedly not as important or not as valuable? I don't believe so. That is Brick Shields. She is an actress, author, spokesperson, as you heard, for Jordache, Claude Dubois. <laughs> 
and founder of the online community for women, Beginning Is Now, which pretty much sums it up. Brooke Shields, this was a total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up in the next hour of All Things Considered, many Ukrainians who escaped to Poland when Russia was invaded are now heading home. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Mostly cloudy skies tonight. The lows around 47 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of rain in the midday. The highs will be around 64 degrees. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. They're getting essentially Polish social security cards so they can work. They're giving them access to health care. Trains and buses are free. The war in Ukraine has led millions to flee the country, and neighboring Poland has gone out of its way to help the refugees. It's Thursday, May 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, the war in Ukraine has forced millions of people to flee. Some refugees in Poland, however, are now starting to return home. Also this hour, Michigan doctors say if Roe is overturned, a dormant state law could outlaw abortion even for rape or incest. The Democratic state AG warns local prosecutors may charge both doctors and patients. And the former U.S. consul in Rio de Janeiro speaks about his concerns about Brazilian President Bolsonaro and the implications for democratic institutions in the country. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Abortion providers around the country are stepping up efforts to help residents get abortions even if a bans take effect in their states. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN reports from Tennessee where Planned Parenthood is hiring so-called navigators to help patients travel. If the leaked Supreme Court ruling stands, abortions will be banned across much of the South. Ashley Cofield, who heads Planned Parenthood of Tennessee in North Mississippi, says her organization still plans to offer pre- and post-abortion care and will connect patients to affiliates that can provide the procedures in places like Illinois, Virginia, and North Carolina. The role of those navigators will be to talk with patients about the barriers they face in exiting our state and finding resources for them to be able to afford to get to where they need to be. Abortion advocates say even if the travel is paid for, many women can't take the time off work or find someone to care for their children as they travel. 
For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. Florida's legal battle against opioid makers and distributors is coming to an end. The state announcing today Walgreens is settling a lawsuit that accused the pharmacy chain of improperly dispensing billions of pain-killing drugs in recent decades. Stephanie Colombini with member station WUSF reports. Attorney General Ashley Moody says the $683 million the state is securing in the Walgreens settlement brings the total collected by the state from opioid lawsuits to more than $3 billion. She says the money will be paid out over the next two decades. The state will use it for treatment and prevention and prioritize areas hit hardest by drug abuse. This is indeed a historic day for Florida, for those struggling with addiction, and for the communities that are suffering the effects of this nationwide crisis. Walgreens says the settlement includes no admission of wrongdoing or liability. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Colombini in Tampa. More people were filing first-time jobless claims last week. The Labor Department reporting today initial claims for unemployment benefits rose by 19,000, over the total number of Americans collecting benefits fell by a similar amount to just under 1.4 million. Shares slumped as fears about the economy intensified today. NPR's Rafael Nam has more. It was one of the ugliest days of the year in Wall Street. Both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq fell sharply, a day after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by the most in over 20 years, as it intensifies its battle against inflation. The Fed plans to raise interest rates even more, and that's going to raise borrowing costs across the economy, from mortgages to bank loans, all coming at a time when Americans are already paying more for just about everything. The big fear is that the Fed will be too aggressive and tip the economy into a recession. The Fed believes it can slow down the economy without sparking a deep slowdown, but investors are not so sure. Rafael Nam, NPR News. The Dow dropped more than 1,000 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Suffolk Construction is pausing work on all of its Boston projects. The move comes a day after three workers were injured at the old Boston Edison plant in South Boston. Suffolk says the voluntary shutdown will continue through tomorrow while it evaluates safety standards and procedures. Well, as expected, a bill that would allow immigrants without legal status to get Massachusetts driver's licenses cleared the state Senate this afternoon. The measure passed with more than enough support to survive a potential veto. The bill passed on a a 32 to 8 vote and prompted cheers from supporters assembled in the gallery. Now that it appears the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says it's time to end the Senate filibuster and take action to protect legalized abortion across the country. More now from WBUR's Anthony Brooks. Markey says ending the filibuster would allow Democrats to pass legislation that would codify Roe v. Wade into federal law. But even some Democrats oppose killing the filibuster. That means next week's Senate vote on the Women's Health Protection Act will likely fail. But Markey says it will send a powerful message. It will signal the beginning of an historic, monumental political battle in the Senate, but also across our country in 2022. Markey says the fight is energizing Democrats ahead of the midterm elections. Abortion opponents say they are energized as well. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The case against a former Somerville police officer who was investigated for allegations that he pepper sprayed a handcuffed man in custody is now closed. Michael McGrath will not see any jail time after admitting to sufficient facts. McGrath will be on probation for a year. He is not allowed to seek employment as a police officer. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu reported for jury duty today, but the mayor was dismissed and did not have to serve on a jury. Jury trials resumed back in February after being suspended because of COVID.
Sports, the Red Sox got shut out this afternoon at Fenway Park, 8 to nothing against the Angels there. In the forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight. The lows around 47, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Chance of rain in the midday, the highs around 64. Right now, 69 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. As the fighting continues to shift in Ukraine, Ukrainians are shifting too. According to the UN, more than 13 million have been driven from their homes by the war. Nearly 6 million have fled west into Europe, setting off the largest refugee crisis on the continent since World War II. But now many are also crossing back into Ukraine. Statistics from Polish border officials show that on some recent days, as many Ukrainians are returning to their country as fleeing it. NPR's Jason Bobian is in the Polish capital, Warsaw, and joins us to talk about all this. Hi, Jason. Hey, Adrian. Jason, most of those refugees ended up going at least initially into Poland. What's the situation like right now? Well, it's certainly less chaotic than when I was here in March. Back at that point, you had more than 100,000 people a day crossing into Poland. A lot of them were ending up at the central bus station here in Warsaw. Many had no idea even where they were going to sleep for the night. Now there still are big tents at the Warsaw bus station, and there's people offering food, and volunteers are helping people find housing and jobs and transportation if they want to try to move further into Europe. I met this one woman, Maria Doranina. She was trying to get visas to Canada for herself and her two kids, and she was trying to fill out the online application form, um, including uploading her kids' birth certificates over this old cell phone. Uh, but despite that, and even though she's never even been to Canada, she thinks this is the best move for her right now. I, I want my children have future and I think that the future in Ukraine will be difficult for them. Maybe sometime I will return but not now. Even if the war ends tomorrow she says she doesn't think the Russian threat to Ukraine is going to go away. And yet people are going back into Ukraine anyway. Why is that Jason? You know, probably the biggest driver of it is that the Ukrainian military managed to hold off the Russian offensive on Kyiv. You know, missile strikes continue as they do all over the country, but Kyiv's no longer under a direct military assault by Russian ground troops. So, so people are hearing that, and they're hearing that it's relatively safe to go back. Also, Ukraine still isn't allowing most men to leave the country. The vast majority of the refugees are women and children, so there's this desire for families to reunite. And finally, some of the push for Ukrainian refugees to return is because for most of them, this this is a difficult life. Difficult even though Poland has been very welcoming to Ukrainian refugees. Um, what are the conditions like there for them? Yeah, it's true. I mean, Poland has been bending over backwards in a way that you don't often see in a refugee crisis. Uh, they're getting essentially Polish social security cards to the Ukrainians so they can work. Uh, they're giving them access to health care, trains and buses are free. Uh, they can even get the same unemployment benefits as if they were Polish. But housing is scarce and most of the refugees are either staying with other Ukrainians who'd been living here before the war or they're living with Polish families. Do you have a sense, Jason, of, of how long Poland can extend this kind of welcome? You know, I'm hearing from analysts that this situation is going to have to be carefully managed in the future, particularly in terms of the burden of refugees on schools and on the healthcare system. But one factor that's really working well for everybody is that Poland's economy has been booming. The unemployment rate here is at like 3%. So there's a need for more workers. 
And then the second factor is that many Poles are also afraid that at some point they could be the target of Russian aggression. And so supporting the Ukrainians who are showing up here is seen by many Poles as doing their part to keep the Russian threat further at bay. That's NPR's Jason Bobian in Warsaw, Poland. Uh, Jason, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Some people in Michigan are sounding the alarm about a strict abortion law that's been on the books since 1931. It's currently unenforced, but if the Supreme Court strikes Roe down, that could change. As Michigan Radio's Kate Wells reports, the law would make abortion a felony, even in cases of rape or incest. The anti-abortion protesters, who often crowd outside this Planned Parenthood in Ann Arbor, have gone home for the day. So now it's quiet, just a lot of women sitting in their cars, one with a baby on her lap, all waiting for friends or family in the clinic. Veronica Valdivia Vera says she did not know about Michigan's old law criminalizing abortion. Nope, I, I, I was not aware that, you know, that would happen. It's like shocking times. Wouldn't even think that in 2022 we would be worrying about women's rights, reproductive rights. Veronica is here with her daughter-in-law, Stephanie Mejia Arseniega. They're waiting for Stephanie's friend, who's still inside the clinic. And Stephanie says even just pulling into the clinic was kind of scary. They were surrounded by anti-abortion protesters. It's kind of intimidating because they come to your car super fast. You don't want to run them feet over. So, like, we had to, like, stop and be like, okay, no, thank you. And we were, like, 10 minutes late for our appointment because of that. Stephanie is only 18. She can't imagine a world where abortion's illegal. You wouldn't want someone young that isn't ready to have to have a baby because the law says no. Like, it's not fair. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel agrees. People can go to jail or prison for this. Nessel says the way the old law is written, the doctor who performs an abortion and possibly the patient could get up to four years. Michigan has not enforced that law since Roe was decided in 1973, but it was never repealed. Nessel, a Democrat, says she won't enforce it, but Michigan has 83 local county prosecutors, and they could do whatever they want. I don't think that I have the authority to tell the duly elected county prosecutors what they can and what they cannot charge. Nessel also talked about her own abortion that she had years ago. She was pregnant with triplets, and they weren't growing in utero. And I was told very, very specifically that there was no way that all three would make it to term. But if I aborted one, that it was possible that the other two might live. And I took my doctor's advice. And you know what? It turned out that he was right. You know, now I have two beautiful sons. But under the 1931 law, there is just one exemption to preserve the life of the woman. University of Michigan OBGYN Dr. Lisa Harris says that is dangerously vague. What if a pregnant woman has severe heart disease and her chance of dying in pregnancy is 20 to 30 percent? But is that enough of a chance of dying that that person would qualify under Michigan's ban? Or would their risk of dying need to be 50 percent or... A hundred percent. Or what if a pregnant woman has cancer and she needs to end the pregnancy to start chemo? Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is a Democrat, but the state's legislature is controlled by Republicans. So weeks ago, Whitmer filed a lawsuit trying to block the old abortion law from ever taking effect. There's also a push to let voters decide in the November election if abortion should be legal in Michigan. But that would not be until long after the Supreme Court makes its final ruling. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Ann Arbor. 
This story comes from NPR's partnership with Michigan Radio and Kaiser Health News. With inflation at historic highs, it's perhaps time for a long-ignored investment option to shine, the I-bond. It's a U.S. Treasury savings bond whose interest payments are linked to inflation. Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain some of the fine print. Before we get to I-bonds, let's talk about the plain old U.S. savings bond. It's been around since the Great Depression, and it's one of the safest, kind of most dull investments that there are. Right now, the interest rate on a Series EE U.S. savings bond, that's like the traditional plainest vanilla savings bond, is uh, 0.1%. And I-bonds are savings bonds, but with a twist. Their interest rate is tied to the consumer price index. So when inflation goes up, so does the interest rate. When I-bonds came out, I felt, oh, finally. Zvi Bodhi is a professor emeritus at Boston University. He's a financial economist who has been obsessed with inflation hedging strategies since the 1970s. And he sees I-bonds as a government program that serves the public interest. Basically, the U.S. Treasury is covering the cost of inflation for regular folks. So the U.S. Treasury introduced I-bonds in 1998, and that year, Zvi goes to a bank to buy the maximum amount of I-bonds for him, his wife, and their two daughters. And I said, I want to buy I-bonds. And they said, what are you talking about? They didn't have a clue. And I said, I know that you have them because the Treasury distributed them. So they had to go down into the basement and they came back and they said, you know what? You're right. We have them. <laughs> well, there you go. Zvi was, was spreading the word to the banks about their own product. Um, and it does seem like I-bonds have just been underappreciated from the beginning, which kind of makes sense. Like inflation was just 1.6% in 1998. So holding on to your purchasing power maybe wasn't the first thing you're thinking about when you're putting away savings. Yeah. And today is, of course, a very different story. With inflation helping to set the I-bonds interest rate, for the last six months, it was just over 7%. The new rate came out on Monday, and it's now over 9%. Now, there are some caveats to I-bonds. Number one, I-bonds protect you from inflation. They don't beat inflation. And number two, you're not going to get rich quick off I-bonds. There's this $10,000 cap per calendar year, and the earliest you can redeem an I-bond is one year. But for Zvi, it's been worth it. He estimates he has more than half a million dollars of I-bonds in his portfolio today. And now people are finally paying attention to this thing he's been talking about since 1998. You know what it takes is a bout of inflation. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, everybody, their interest perks up. Well, not quite everybody. Here's the shocker, Waylon. It's 23 years later. I have an accountant who does my taxes, okay? So I said to my accountant, I'd like to, you know, buy I-bonds. He said, what? What are those? (laughs) The work uh, marketing this continues, Mr. V. Lonely road. (laughs) Darian Woods. Waylon Wong, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, NPR TV critic Eric Deggins reviews the new Paramount Plus series, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. He says it recaptures the sentiment of the original series. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, a daily farm market featuring homegrown, flowering-hanging baskets and plants for Mother's Day. Hours and gift cards available at volantefarms.com. And Worcester Polytechnic Institute, whose research approach is like nowhere else, meaning their impact solves problems in ways others don't. wpi.edu future. In business news, big losses on Wall Street today as markets worry that the Fed's plans to fight inflation with higher rates will slow the economy. The Dow lost 3%, over 1,000 points, to close at 32,998. NASDAQ was off 5%, 647 points at 12,318. The S&P 500 down 3.5% to 41.47. Stocks in some of Massachusetts' largest publicly traded companies took a tumble along with the larger market. Department store giant TJX companies closed more than 3.5%. Thermo Fisher Scientific dropped just over 2%. And at the closing bell, General Electric was down 2.2%. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Mindscape, featuring new works by choreographers William Forsyth and Yorma Ello. Live May 5th to 15th, bostonballet.org. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. In sports, not a good day over at Fenway. The Red Sox got shut out this afternoon, 8 to nothing. the final score. They were playing the Angels. In the forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight. Lows will be around 47 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of rain in the midday. The high is around 64 degrees. Mostly cloudy with a chance of rain on Saturday, a high of 52. Partly sunny and 54 degrees on Sunday. Right now, 69 degrees in Boston. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, Iran's nuclear project, again at a deadline. When Donald Trump took us out of Barack Obama's deal, Iran went back to enriching uranium. They're now a week or so away from what they'd need to make a bomb. The proliferation nightmare next on Open Source. Tonight at 9, Sunday at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has been called the Trump of the tropics. He won his first election easily, but is facing a tough re-election this fall. And now he's been casting doubt on Brazil's election system, making claims very similar to false claims that former President Trump has made about U.S. elections. We want clean and auditable elections. I can't participate in a farce backed by the president of the electoral court. These sorts of attacks have Scott Hamilton very worried. Hamilton was the U.S. consul in Rio de Janeiro until last year. After retiring from the State Department last week, he published a stinging op-ed in Brazil's largest newspaper. And he joins us now. Scott Hamilton, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much, Adrian. In your piece, you said that Bolsonaro has a messianic vision and that he's sabotaging the integrity of his country's democratic process ahead of October's elections. What, what have you seen? Well, when I was in Rio, I saw President Bolsonaro do a number of things that caused me tremendous concern. He attacked judges as partisan figures who cannot be trusted. He criticized the outstanding electronic voting system in Brazil 
He castigated the media as purveyors of fake news. He lambasted civil society. He also said that only fraud or God will remove him from office. And most recently, Mr. Bolsonaro has said that the military in Brazil must be involved in running a parallel vote count. So taken individually, none of those things are normal. But taken collectively, I think they should have alarm bells ringing in Washington. Is your fear that he might refuse to uh, vacate the presidency should he lose the election? I do, frankly. Um, I think our mismanagement of the relationship with Brazil during the Bolsonaro administration under both Presidents Trump and Biden means that we are risking sleepwalking to disaster as Brazil uh, prepares to hold these elections. I think Bolsonaro is thinking very hard about whether he will leave office or not. Well, you wrote in your piece that the U.S. has been too passive uh, and that it needs to speak up now about this. What do you think the U.S. government should be saying and should they be saying it publicly? I think starting even a couple of years ago, we should have been uh, telling Mr. Bolsonaro that uh, the electoral system in that country was one that should not be intimidated in the manner in which he was seeking to do more than that, I think we should also have been far more public uh, about uh, visiting with the independent democratic institutions in Brazil, like the Supreme Court, like the Electoral Tribunal, and making it clear that we have confidence in their professionalism and integrity. You published this column shortly after retiring from the State Department. But I have to ask, when you were the U.S. consul in Rio, how strongly did you raise these sorts of alarms uh, to colleagues in Washington or to counterparts in the Brazilian government? I raised it three times uh, before I left uh, Brazil. I raised it first in around uh, June of uh, 2020 with our ambassador, um, Ambassador Chapman. And when I had that discussion with him, he made it very clear that he was not persuaded that there was an issue. Uh, I raised it again a few days after President Biden was inaugurated in January uh, in a written form to the ambassador again. And that got no response at all, nothing whatsoever. And so when I left Brazil uh, in July of last year, I wrote again to uh, half a dozen senior officials in Washington and in Brasilia. And I only got one response to that uh, note, which was favorable, uh, indicating that it would be forwarded to others in the government. But um, if such messages uh, have been passed to Bolsonaro, I'm not aware. How is your article being received by everyday Brazilians. What have you heard from, from people you know there? I think that Brazilian society is, is about as polarized as, as the United States. And so there are quite clearly a large number of people who share my view. On the other hand, of course, there are uh, people who feel Bolsonaro has been sent by God to save the country from communism and that any effort to get in his way of that uh, mission uh, is uh, inappropriate and uh, unwarranted. And so I, I suspect there are plenty of people who would uh, strongly disagree. Scott Hamilton was the U.S. consul in Rio de Janeiro from 2018 until 2021. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Adrian. A new Star Trek series called Star Trek Strange New Worlds debuts today on the Paramount Plus streaming service. NPR TV critic Eric Deggan says it boldly goes where a certain other classic science fiction TV series also went with spellbinding results. Star Trek Strange New Worlds is the third live-action version of the Trek franchise to land on Paramount+, and it is by far the most similar to the original show that kicked off this 55-year-old franchise way back when the adventures of Kirk, Spock, and Bones first debuted on old-school broadcast TV. If you have any doubt, check out the show's opening credits, which feature Anson Mount's Captain Christopher Pine, 
delivering a familiar speech. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Here's what's most amazing about watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds, especially for this longtime Trek fan. How much I enjoyed a series that recaptures the sentiment, adventure, and rhythms of the old show, but with a sparkling new sensibility. I didn't know how much I missed old school Trek until this show gave it to me again. Technically, Strange New Worlds takes place many years before the era of Kirk and Spock when a different man, Captain Christopher Pike, commands the Federation Starship Enterprise. Fans who watched the first modern Star Trek series on Paramount Plus, Star Trek Discovery, know that Pike showed up there and saw a terrible vision of his future. That vision now haunts him as he explains to a science officer, Mr. Spock. I saw my own death, Spock. And I didn't just see it, I felt it every agonizing second. I can't stop seeing it. I would suggest knowledge of death is vital for effective leadership. Knowledge is one thing, Spock, but I experienced it. How will it live in me? That question hangs over the series as we meet younger versions of beloved characters given a modern twist. Christine Chapel is transformed from a lovesick nurse with a crush on Spock to a brilliant medical expert. Spock, played by Ethan Peck, is changed by his connection to a character from Discovery who is his adopted sister. And we also meet a young version of another cherished Trek character. Communications, the prodigy. Cadet Uhura on communications rotation. Very happy to have you aboard. Thank you, sir. Enterprise is cleared for launch. A later episode detailing how Uhura, now played by Celia Rose Gooding, first came to Starfleet is a wonderful highlight. But the true appeal here is seeing a return to the Adventure of the Week format that previous Paramount Plus Trek shows abandoned. In the first episode, this involves Pike disregarding Starfleet regulations, like they always do, to stop a less advanced alien species from plunging into war. He tells them about Earth's history of conflict. We called it the Second Civil War, then the Eugenics War, and finally, just World War III. What began as an eruption in one nation ended in the eradication of 600,000 species of animals and plants and 30% of Earth's population. You'll use competing ideas of liberty to bomb each other to rubble just like we did, and then your last day will look just like this. Sounds a little too close to today's times for comfort. But it's also a refreshing return to the days when Star Trek was about a diverse, charismatic group of explorers having new adventures every week while proving the value of unity and peace among the stars. Welcome back, Star Trek. Your return to classic form is needed by TV fans now more than ever. I'm Eric Deggins. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 69 degrees in Boston at 629. Coming up next at 630, it's Marketplace stocks are way off today as investors are nervous about the steps the Fed is taking in an attempt to curb inflation. That's ahead here on WBUR. The forecast, mostly cloudy skies tonight. The lows around 47. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of rain in the midday. The highs will be around 64. Again, right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. And so I think when you think about what the United States is going to look like after Roe, you're going to end up with a lot of all or nothing and not a lot of these states that are kind of deeply engaging in this complicated middle ground where we see a lot of the public would like politicians to be. I'm Michael Barbaro, 
That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR.